This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Welcome to Gen C. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akineni from Vayner3. Avery. We are going to do our 22 interview conversation to start this podcast. And then we have an amazing guest in Ian Rogers from Ledger, who has had such a historic career that we'll talk about in a second, but I'm very excited for that conversation. But first, how are you? Where are you? And how are you feeling? Hey, Sam, I can't believe it's already been 22 episodes. I feel like it's flown by and... It really goes to show you how quickly the Web3 ecosystem is evolving because I think the stuff we were talking about 22 weeks ago, now we'd be like, oh, psh. and now stuff that I'm sure in 22 weeks from now, we will have a completely or have a somewhat different perspective. Yeah. So I'm really excited to have Ian on. In the last you know 22 episodes, we've had on quite a few brands. We've had on quite a few builders. And Ian is a great example of someone who actually went from being on the brand side to being a builder. And I think you can argue he's building the brand of Ledger. So I think he's got that really interesting intersection between his experience at companies like LVMH and now what he's building at Ledger, that it's going to be a great conversation. I am so fired up. And Ian is, I got to say, probably one of the swaggiest guests we've had on. He has this squiggle sweater that he got custom made that is just chef's kiss. So Sam, why are you excited to have on Ian? I know you're a very close friend of his as well. Like You've been sort of running in the same circles. Why are you pumped to have Ian on? Ian has my crush career. I got into MP3s because I was the president of a creative agency in my late 20s. And we had just gotten a big investment from Omnicom. And we had gotten this amazing new office space. And myself and like 40 other people we work with put every one of our songs, we burned them all into MP3s. And we had a sound system that just had one big Winamp player on a computer that anyone could go up and play the soundtrack for the creative agency. And then I learned Ian was part of the like three or four people who created Winamp. And then I look at Winamp and then I look at Beats Music and then I look at the BC Boys and then I look at LVMH and then I look at Ledger. And I'm just like, at every point of like the intersection of culture and technology, Ian's been. And that's why I'm so fascinated to talk with him. What about yourself? We need to talk to him about the fact that Ledger has become a fashion accessory, which is one of the most surprising fashion accessories I think that you never saw coming. Everybody from Gunna to Snoop is rocking their ledger on their neck. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to unpack that with him. Avery, when are you getting an iced out ledger? Hopefully soon. (laughs) It's actually funny you mentioned that. Little Alpha, we're working on a potential collab with them for something kind of cool. Amazing. Hopefully, I will get on that Alpha list. All right. The second thing for us to talk about, which has been a theme that's come up a lot, crypto and blockchain as an unlock for events. This is NFT NYC in New York City right now. I think I'm going to the NFT Now Gala tonight. And we talked a lot about the idea, you know, we had Fonz from Token Proof on the podcast. We talked to Carly about live events as well. And I was really impressed with the tweet that Avenge Sevenfold put out this week that explained more about their sort of on-chain tickets with Ticketmaster, but also really talked about their idea of rating reputation as a fan in their community. So what they said was they're going to be taking all inputs in from listening consumption to merch sales, to coming to events, to social. And in essence, it feels like giving people a score that unlock different tiers of access to the band and the band's catalog. 
which I just thought was, again, a fascinating way of looking at it, because I do think we've talked so much about the idea of the best Web3 brands are looking through the lens of rewarding customers versus extracting value from customers. Is this a model for the future when it comes to fandom? What's your thoughts? A lot of thoughts. For one, to the NFT 100 Gala, you should definitely wear a ledger, as we just talked. That is the fashion accessory du jour. So I expect to see you in a blingy ledger in some type of fabulous outfit. I'm really bullish on Web3 to maximize events. I think it's a little bit more in the niche and nascent camp than in the ubiquitous camp for right now. And trust me, like you're talking to a person who has put different elements of Web3 at different festivals and large scale events. I think the reality of where we are today is it's still really nascent. Ticketmaster and Live Nation are doing a lot of stuff in this space. So we'll have to see like, do consumers value those digital collectibles and NFTs as tickets? Like, I hope so. But we're still figuring out exactly what is going to stick from a consumer standpoint that has salience and also scale. I think right now in the world of people who are Web3 native, it's everything. Token proof is everywhere. It's critical. I know you all are leveraging elements of this for consensus. We're leveraging elements of this for VCon. So we're both very bullish on it. But I haven't seen that like chat GPT moment for Web3 ticketing that I hope is coming. Right now, it's still a niche thing. And integration points are more like, how do we maximize after the fact? Which is, by the way, still a massive opportunity for brands who do a lot in the world of experiential. You know, we've had on Diageo and PepsiCo and Anheuser-Busch, all of whom do a tremendous amount of experiential advertising and sponsorships. And that's a real value add for them. But we need to see that watershed moment that gets normal people to really care about it before we really see serious scale. A good friend of ours went to the Knicks game over the weekend and missed out on the fact that Coinbase showed a QR code to claim a PO app for going to the game. And I saw him get bummed that he missed it. And what Patricio from Poap said was that they only showed it on the screen for a couple of minutes. And so only if you noticed it and took your phone out, were you able to claim. And I sort of liked the idea of also gamifying the game. You're at an event, and then suddenly this thing comes up. And if you happen to get it, you have an on-chain asset that says I was there. But then the ability for the Knicks, Coinbase, Poap, whoever it is, to then reward people who do that and to be able to say, oh, this person was at three games, five games, 10 games, 20 games over a certain life seems pretty powerful to me. Yes. And, you know, the context for why, just so, you know, our listeners will understand this is like, hey, ad space during a Knicks game is actually very expensive. So like you don't have it for the duration of the entire game. We actually did something in 2021, probably the first use case of POAP at a major sporting event. We did it for the US Open. It was really cool. But, you know, a couple of thousand people scanned it and a couple of hundred people put it in their wallet. So it was small scale, but it was interesting. And that's actually, I think when I got to know Patricio, which is amazing. I think that this is a massive thing. It's still so small though, because that friend that we're talking about is someone who's really into this stuff and he's really into the Knicks and he's really into NFTs and he loves Coinbase. So he's like a perfect fit for this. But the reality is I think a lot of people just scan it and don't really understand what they're getting yet. And you know that conversion between entering your email and actually putting it in your wallet, there's a really significant drop off there. So that's something that you know we're always working to address. It's slowly and then it's all at once. So with that, let us get to our guest. Ian Rogers is going to join in a second from Ledger. Ian is an incredible builder, thinker, creative mind, sort of influential person, both in our space and traditional technology spaces. So we'll get to Ian right after the break and can't wait to talk to him. Web3 offers budding opportunities for brands to create more value for their customers, engage fans, and build immersive community. But that doesn't come without its risks. 
Chainalysis helps Fortune 500 brands better understand and manage the risks in Web3 through proactive assessments, on-chain monitoring, investigations, training, and more, so that they can focus on building a roadmap for long-term growth. Learn more about how Chainalysis can help your company grow in Web3 at chainalysis.com slash gen C. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. All right, everyone, we are here with Ian Rogers, Chief Experience Officer at Ledger. Ian has the career that I have always dreamed of. He was involved with Winamp, which is like my first tech crush product. And my most popular tweet ever, by the way, was just showing a Winamp skin. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also Beats Music, Apple, LVMH, and now with Ledger. So really excited to talk with you. Ian, just going to throw you into the deep end really quickly. You know, we could spend a lot of time talking about your career. But I feel like you've been involved in so many of the influential brands that influence modern culture from a tech perspective. And I'm sort of just like interested in your opinion of sort of how technology has influenced our cultural landscape. It feels like we live in such a tech forward society these days. And again, you've been involved in so many different areas of it, both as a chief digital officer for LVMH, as well as all the tech products. What's your view on like how tech forward are we as a culture these days? I think it's sort of hard to put the cursor exactly on the timeline, right? Because on some level, you could say that it's always been the case and it's always been accelerating, probably from fire and the wheel, you know, certainly through to the printing press and shipbuilding and automotive and aerospace and nuclear and silicon chip and the internet, right? But then it does feel like it's, you know, accelerating. And there are certainly some people that believe that natural selection favors AI over humans. So, right, you could say that that's sort of the ultimate acceleration. But I think that that's really been the key theme for me. And I came about it accidentally, right? I was just like, love culture and music and also, you know, started programming computers when I was eight. And then you start to find things. And I think for me also, I didn't really think about how technology was changing culture. But in the 90s, I had this thing that I loved to do, which was listen to music. But the people I wanted to buy music from didn't want to sell music to me that way. So I started asking the question, well, why not? And then I became part of the business and watched, you know, the business fall from 30 billion down to 15 billion. And I had friends in the music business who committed suicide during that period. You know what I mean? So you realize like, this isn't like, ha ha ha, like, let's play Monopoly, you know, like this is people's livelihoods. And so I really ha start to think deeply about, well, how does technology change culture? Now that I'm a little older and sort of lived through that internet cycle, I think where I've landed is that we really like to think that humans are these like sovereign creatures and technology is just this tool that we use. But really, you know, technology shapes society, you know, and it always has. We just kind of remain in denial of that. The internet is such a great example. You know, I started working on the internet in 1990, roughly. And, you know, most people were like, what the hell are you talking about? And then, you know, you go through this kind of like gold rush period. And then you go through this like, haha, that was a fad. And all those Super Bowl ads were stupid. And you guys are all like, you know, dumb gold rusher nerds, period. And then you get this sort of like, you know, prolonged growth. The thing that's remarkable in that timeline is just how wrong the predictions were, right? People said, oh, everyone's never going to have broadband. Everyone's never going to have a mobile phone. Smartphones are for rich people. Uber is for rich people. You know what I mean? And 
6.5 billion connected smartphones. And the reality is it's the rich people who can afford to put their phones down. But if you drive Bolt or DoorDash, like you need your phone more than that rich person. In fact, right, your smartphone is much more a part of your livelihood. To me, that's what's super fun to look at is what are all of the ways that technology does shape the world around us? Because it does. Like, how am I going to get home tonight? Oh, well, I'll use City Mapper or Waze, right? It's just like all these little ways that it's in your life. And then the other thing is to look back and go, well, how wrong were the predictions 25 years ago? And then kind of use that as a guide for looking forward. I love that. Learn from the many, many, many lessons that history can teach us, starting from the wheel. <laughs> Great quote from Ian. So Ian, you've had this incredible career. I think you were living in Paris already when you met Pascal Gauthier, who's the CEO of Ledger. Can you talk us through that decision to leave this incredible organization and jump into something that many people might have felt was speculative or you know, a very new and emerging industry? Is that risk tolerance a consistent thread through your career? And what got you to make the move to Ledger from your role at LVMH? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a few things. I mean, I think that risk tolerance is definitely a part of who I am. My first year out of college, I made more money than my parents probably made, you know, because I studied computer science. My mom's a nurse. My dad was a fireman. You know, so I think that you have a long way to fall. And I've always kind of felt that way. But also, you know, I have a history of taking somewhat risky bets and having them go okay. Not all the time, for sure. I think I've done 13 startups and, you know, sold one to Apple, one to Yahoo, one to AOL. So obviously, you know, more failures than success stories, but, you know, it's the success stories that people remember. And when I went and worked with these like two guys in Sedona, Arizona, who were building an MP3 player called Winamp, it was not the, you know, the year was 1998. And my friends were all like, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, I was working at Sony at the time. I had a nice job at Sony. I was a single dad. I couldn't really afford to take a risk. I didn't care. I loved music and I loved this product and I thought these people were brilliant and they was just like what I wanted to think about all day. I mean, it was a bit of a flyer for me to leave the music business and come to LVMH. Not so risky, you know, because coming and working for Ben Adonno in France is a great way to come to France. And it's true that right when I moved here, I met two people, Pascal Gauthier, who at the time was the first seed investor in Ledger, and also Tony Fidel, who had moved to Paris from the US around the same time as me. And we became friends. And I think, you know, what happened to me, there were two things. One, I, just through being friends with Pascal, it took me three years. But after three years of friendship with Pascal, I got the joke on Ledger. I said, okay, I see what this is. This is like betting on Cisco in the 90s. And this is around 2018 for me. So we just kind of lived through like altcoin madness, right? And, you know, my like sort of stunned kind of mental regrouping was like, okay, we have no idea. If you ask me, will there be more digital assets in the world tomorrow than yesterday? I would say more. If you ask me which one I should buy, I would say, I have no idea. So same thing for me in the 90s. You know, you ask me like which internet stock to buy in 1998 or 99, I would have been, I have no idea. But if you said, will there be more internet in the world tomorrow, you know, or less, I would say, well, more, obviously, absolutely, without question. I had that same realization about Ledger is that Ledger was a company that was going to participate in the digital asset economy, regardless of what shape it took, because we do have digital ownership, we will have digital ownership, and we will need hardware, which can actually protect digital value, which our phones and our computers of today are just, you know, not designed to do and they fundamentally cannot do. The other thing for me, though, was the pandemic. Tony Fidel and I, you know, our families were pod families during the pandemic. We were the only families that we saw. 
So we really wound ourselves up, you know, talking about like, wow, you know, two trillion of stimulus in the US. That's what it was at first, you know, a trillion in Europe and the technology is here, right? We're like, look, this pandemic and this financial policy leads to inflation and we are moving from a state driven world to a network driven world. You know, that's just like the technologist mind, you know, Balaji's the network state just fits with my worldview. I mean, even the reason that I came to LVMH was because of that just sort of belief that the internet moves us from mass to niche. It moves us from like a world which is marketing hyper-efficiency to a world which is quality hyper-efficiency. In other words, we all kind of divide up into things that we love as opposed to things that just happen to be convenient and around us. You know, on Friday night, we don't just go watch the one movie that's on the screen in our town, which is, you know, how I grew up. You know, we actually choose from any movie we could possibly watch on the internet. That's the world that we live in. You know, so therefore, just like many teenagers have a lot of their value in sneakers, a lot of people will have a lot of their value in a lot of other things, right? Also being at LVMH, I was lucky enough to have this conversation with, about this with Ben Arano last night. Ben Arano is the top of the Forbes list. And many of the brands which create the value in his portfolio are things that most people on earth have never heard of. Loewe is a relatively unknown brand, but it is helmed by probably the greatest living fashion designer, and it is a great business. Even though, you know, you could say like, you know, if you put the number of customers of Loewe in a given year, over seven or eight billion people on the planet, the fraction is very small. But if you have a puzzle bag, I love you already. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my, I'll tell you, my mom has a puzzle bag. That's how, that's how deep I am. <laughs> but that's exactly it. You know, it's one of those things, like if you know, you know, and that's the future that we're going into. You know, you don't need to be Coca-Cola to have a great business. You know, Ben Arano proves that. And, you know, certainly luxury goods in the future, you know, many will be digital. You know, the only question is what percentage. I went very deep into Bernardo Arno's career a couple of weeks ago after listening to the Acquired podcast about LVMH. And it does seem, you know, you mentioned him, yourself, Tony, like in your sense, is there kind of like rule breakers find each other? Because it sounds like people who really try to focus on status quo, you know, you can make a great business, but the folks who truly change the world are the ones who think differently. You know, there's got to be some truth to that. I mean, I used to say that all the best people in my life I met through skateboarding, right? So there's something to that. Like Tony and Pascal and Ben know I did not meet through skateboarding, so I can't say that at this point in my life. The Beastie Boys, I certainly did on some level. There's some truth to it for sure, because I'll tell you, when I moved to France, and no offense meant to anyone, but I met a lot of people when I moved here. But when I met Pascal, like within 10 minutes, I wanted a second date. I was really like, wow, this guy is different than all the rest of the people I've met in Paris. And he truly is. You know, He was the COO of Critio, which is the only French company to ring the bell on the NASDAQ in the last 15 or 20 years. Like, He's a very interesting character. Tony is an unbelievable character. And really, like, there's something to that, that like, we share a love of music. Obviously, we're nerds and we're crazy people, but we also share this love of music. To be honest, that was the initial kind of hook for me and Tony. And I think, you know, I would say we're quite close on a personal level. Yeah, sure, weirdos find each other. Also, though, even with Ben Arano, I mean, I have to say, like, I'm really touched, to be honest, that him and the family still rate me. I'm a weirdo. And I spent an hour with him yesterday and I left kind of amazed again, like, I think he enjoyed the conversation. He did say to me once, I told him a particular situation within LVMH. You know, it was something that nobody in LVMH wanted me to do, and I did it anyway, and he loved it. And then I told him, you know, no one wanted me to do that, right? And he was like, I love that. He's like, whenever somebody tells me no, it just makes me want to do it more. 
So there is definitely something like, for sure, Pascal, Tony, Ben Arano, and I, whatever the common theme is between us, we are all definitely people that if somebody tells you, oh, that's going to be really hard, we don't then run away. We go, oh, really? Tell me again. Tell me more. It's going to be really hard. Okay, well, then maybe I want to try it. For listeners who may or may not be ledgerified already, what is a ledger and what does your company do? You know, the simplest way to describe it might be, you know, Ledger is the iPod of the digital asset world. The reality is, is again, you will have digital value in your life. Ultimately, it will be your passport and your driver's license and a lot of your net worth. But it'll also be things that, you know, show what your identity is, right? And show who you are, you know, the same way that the clothes you wear, the sneakers you wear, the headphones you wear, the shirt you wear, you know, the pronouns you use are part of your identity. You know, your, your digital assets will also be a part of your identity. But if we have this world where we have, you know, valuable digital things, then we need to have the hardware that protects them. So, you know, I had a cell phone in 2002, you know, but it was, you know, even though I knew the internet was the future, the cell phone I had in my pocket in 2002 was not at all good at the internet. I know digital assets are a part of the lives of future humans, but the phone that I have in my pocket, even though it is amazing at so many things, it is fundamentally bad at protecting digital assets because the reality is, is the way digital assets work is you have proof that you are the owner of that value out there on the blockchain, right? So you can't lose that proof. If somebody takes that proof from you, well, then they have the proof, right? So it's actually easy to hack that proof out of your phone or your computer. So you need a better way to do it. So what you need is you need a secure element. I'm going to say something you know, more and maybe slightly profound about that secure element in a second, but it's just a chip that protects your secret. The secret is the proof that you own that value. And then anytime you need to prove that, it needs to stay secure. You know, I can't take the proof out of the safe and like show it to you and be like, hey, there's the proof. Because then you're like, oh, I see it. Oh, no, I got it. Let me get a photo of that real quick, right? No, no, no. It needs to be, it's a cryptographic proof. That secret needs to stay private. And the other thing is, is that it's what we call endpoint security, right? So your value is secure on a blockchain. And the point that you're in danger is the point that you're approving a transaction. You say, I'm going to send, you know, Sam $5 worth of USDC. And I'm like, yeah, okay, $5. Okay, send. But that's not what really happened. Actually, that was kind of a fake sign. And what happened underneath was I sent Avery five Bitcoin. And that's what happens if you don't have a secure screen, right? Because there's so much software on our laptops and on our phones that you can have what they call this man in the middle attack, right? Where, you know, it looks like I'm doing one thing but I'm actually doing another. It's the monetary version of the classic phishing attack where I ask you for your password and then you're like, oh, I wasn't actually uh, Google. I was just some site. You know, I leave my car with the same things like I left my car with a valet. Well, they, we don't have a valet. It's that trick, right? So that's what the devices actually do. That's why I say it's the iPod and I think it's the iPod because the iPod was the precursor to the iPhone, right? So ultimately we will have secure phones and I hope that phone will be a ledger phone. But today you've got your phone and your phone will set up a transaction and then you know, you securely approve those transactions using your ledger device. But like I said, I want to say one more thing about the secure element. The secure element is a chip. You actually have that chip in your pocket already. It's in your credit card. It's the same chip that's in your passport. But the chip that's in your passport protects the secrets of the government. The chip that's in your credit card protects the secrets of the bank. Ledger protects your secrets. And it is actually that profound, right? It is, I can hold my money. I can hold my value. It is sovereignty. So it is a tool of freedom. It is mathematically possible to store a billion dollars in your head today. 
because you could put a billion in value on a ledger. You could remember the 24-word recovery phrase for that device. You could throw the ledger in the fire, walk across a border, pick up a new ledger, input those 24 words that are in your brain, and recover the billion dollars. And if you understand that, then you understand like a whole bunch of things about the power of ledger, the power of cryptocurrency, the power of cryptography and mathematics. So this is definitely not just about like speculation on digital assets. I had the pleasure of speaking to 22 congressional staffers here in Paris yesterday from the U.S. And I said that, you know, the way you need to think about this is you need to start by assuming that 15 years from now, your passport is a digital document. And the way you cross borders is you prove you are the owner of the wallet that contains that document. And then you also need to assume that when you are using a credit card to pay for lunch, like I did today, that that's really bad technology to do that with, right? Like, why am I using a credit system to basically pay digital cash, right? There is actually instantaneous and relatively inexpensive global digital cash settlement. Yet somehow I'm paying effectively a 3% tax to this technology company to offer me credit to buy lunch today, right? So just imagine that those two things go away and now you're off to the races in terms of like thinking what the world does look like 15 years from now. And there's a lot of time between now and then, you know, we've got to get regulation around stable coins in the US for the first thing I mentioned to be true, but that happens in the next two to three years. And just like, you know, you would have laughed at me if I told you that the way you're going to make an appointment at the DMV is, you know, the internet in 1998, you know, you would have like spit out your milk. But the way you make an appointment at the DMV today is a website, right? It does happen. It takes a very long time and it's sort of, you know, you want to pull your hair out while you wait, but it does happen ultimately. And you just said about 7,000 things that we should be talking about. But I want to ask you, because when you think of your career in Winamp and Beats Music and kind of you're very software and CS focused, you know, I remember getting my first ledger, I think it was 2016 or 17, you know, very simple screen, plug it into your computer, click two buttons to approve a transaction. What was it like for you to think about the experience of a relatively simple hardware device being the main interface? where I think you'd spend so much time probably thinking so much about the experience of UI UX on a digital platform. I do think that that music experience helped a lot, right? Because you're always kind of playing with hardware in the world of music. And, you know, we did go from very unusable experiences to extraordinarily usable ones, right? In 1998, we were, you know, recording music from the soundboard at Beastie Boys shows and posting them online. And then you had to like explain to people what it was. You had to be, okay, this is an MP3, go to the site and download this player. And if you wanted to rip a compact disc in those days, you did it from the DOS command line, right? And now, you know, if you say like, you know, hey Siri, play some Slayer, you know, Slayer comes out of your phone. That's an incredible journey when you think about it, right? And it does so legally and the artist gets paid and like the amount of infrastructure that went into making that is Again, I started doing streaming music in 1992 and we launched Apple Music in 2015, right? So for me, the poor user experience doesn't bother me at all because I know that, yes, it takes a long time, but it also goes away. And also for me, very specifically, once I kind of got the joke that, you know, we are going to need secure hardware, then it just becomes a question of, well, who's going to do it? How? Over what time horizon? What are the steps to get there? You know, when I took this job, Tony Fidel said to me and Pascal, I told him, you know, I'm going to go to Ledger and run the consumer business. And he said, there's no consumer business in crypto. It's business to geek, not business to consumer. You've got to make it business to consumer. And I like that challenge a lot. And I also know that, you know, like Daniel Johnson said, some things take a long time, right? It's, you know, 
You're not going to get there overnight. And in fact, like being early is the same as being wrong. So, you know, we've really approached it like very methodically. First of all, I think that, you know, the ledger that you bought in 2016, I actually have an old Nano S in my backpack right now, but like there's a Nano X, which has Bluetooth and a battery and a lot more memory than the old S, the Nano S Plus is basically the Nano S with more memory. But, you know, to me, these are like the MP3 players before the iPod, right? And if you had an MP3 player before the iPod, you were a geek that had MP3s and then you're like, oh my God, an MP3 player, let me try this thing out. And then it's the Rio player is what you're saying. Yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) The Rio, the Creative, the iRiver, like I had them all. I never had an MP man or a slim P3, but you know, I was like looking at all of them. And now I think with what we've built with Stacks, this is the Ledger Stacks, which is the world's first curved e-ink touchscreen. I realized today actually that the shape of the screen is exactly the shape of paper inside of a cassette. Anyway, I'm going to do something with that. I mean, to me, this is the iPod, right? It's much easier to use. You've got a lot more screen real estate. It's sexy. The other thing is to really define the problem because a lot of people just kind of throw up their hands and go, oh, it's so hard to use. And you go, you start thinking about it and you go, well, you know, the technology in our life is generally hard to use. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, if I make it through a day without my wife calling me to ask like, what's wrong? Why can't she send WhatsApp messages? Why is the Wi-Fi down? Why does her computer keep asking her for this password? You know what I mean? Like, this is just daily life. I wouldn't say like Web2 is super easy to use. I think that's inaccurate. But also like in the crypto and wallet connected world that we're moving to, what's hard to use? Well, onboarding is very difficult. So we're addressing that head on through a number of things. And also connectivity is really hard. And we're addressing that through a product called Ledger Extension. So we actually have a product we're announcing in a few weeks. that's about making that onboarding much simpler, but, you know, just trying to go, okay, well, what's hard and where's the next plateau? And so I think that's it for me. You know, look, the internet is an indispensable part of our lives and we basically take it for granted today. But I remember when, you know, you didn't tell people go to my website. It was like, there's this thing called the web. And if you get a computer and you get a modem and you get an ISP and you get a web browser, then you can like very slowly look at this like shitty website with no background colors. And when your roommate picks up the phone, you'll be kicked off. And we've somehow over my lifetime come from there to where we are today. So again, like the usability, I see it as like a totally solvable challenge rather than like an uh, unsurpassable hurdle. Ian, let's talk a little bit about the comment you made about moving from B to G, B to geek to B to C, business to consumer. You've done a lot of collabs at Ledger, and I think collabs are just sort of a very like of the moment 2023 thing to do in brand marketing. And you all have worked with partners, everyone from Fendi to VFriends. Can you talk a little bit about that strategy and any favorites there? Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, like, look, I literally grew up with the BC boys. I was so lucky, right? I started working with them in 1994 and, you know, still do to this day. So to me, it's just like almost second nature. What you do is you build culture around your brand. What's interesting to me, I think what Virgil did at Vuitton, he learned from the BC boys. He would have told you that. I think even what Jonathan does at Loewe and JW Anderson is related, even though he didn't learn from the BC boys at all. He just has it instinctively, which is that you build culture around your brand. So the same way that the BC boys they wanted to show, and I'm going to make it up, but they were not adjacent to 311 and Miskit. You know, they were not. In their mind, they were adjacent to Lee Scratch Perry and James Brown and the meters and Lovebug Starsky. And so we used Grand Royal Magazine and Grand Royal Records and, you know, merchandise and videos by Spike Jones and all of these ways that you kind of start to build culture around your brand. So to me, like that's always been kind of the mental model and it's what just sort of feels natural. So obviously we did a lot of that sort of thing with Beats, like big and small. And then at LVMH, it's like a masterclass in like building culture. 
And I think the thing that really like strikes me is we grew up with mass media. And so therefore we like to like think of the world in terms of everybody, but that is exactly the world that's over. That's exactly the world that the internet has eroded. You know, Seth Godin says you should find yourself a nickel every time you use the word everybody. And it's really true because when you say everybody or nobody, you are wrong by default. And that's where LVMH is a masterclass. Like the guy at the top of the Forbes list has a bunch of brands you haven't heard of. Like, think about that for a second. You know, that means that he has collected things where, you know, they are very good at creating attention within a certain group, and then they have very effective value capture. And this is exactly the model that Derek Edward Schloss talks about relative to NFTs, that everything is about attention creation and value capture. What I always like to say is that, you know, Drake, Damien Hurst, and Louis Vuitton are all in the same business because they're in the business of attention creation and value capture. And by the way, you know, Louis Vuitton and Damien Hurst's method of value capture is much more efficient than Drake's. And that's something I've learned in my career going from the music business to the LVMH business. Then when it comes to collabs, for us at Ledger, it's just about like being important in the communities that matter. I think it's what we've been successful at and we need to keep going, right? Because if you're in the CryptoPunks community or the Bored Apes community, it's very, very, very likely you are very familiar with Ledger. You know, like 50% of those assets are on ledgers already. And if you don't have your crypto punk on a ledger, you probably think you're going to do it tomorrow, right? Like, you know, oh yeah, I got to do that. It's on your to-do list, right? If you just got a digital collectible from Ticketmaster, your very first one, and it was basically free, well, maybe you're a ledger customer in a year. But to me, there is no such thing as crypto, just like there's no such thing as LVMH, right? LVMH is a collection of brands and crypto is a collection of communities. And really, humanity is a collection of communities. You know, I think Discord is a, you know, it's like the best kind of analog for humanity, right? It's a collection of closed communities. That's where we are, you know, in kind of human evolution at the moment. There isn't a way to get a message to everybody. You know, good luck. You want to market to my 16-year-old? Good luck. You're going to be better go through one of her friends or maybe like Nicki Minaj can dial it in for you. But like putting it on CNN is not going to reach her. Putting it on the front page of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal is not going to get to her. That's, I think, what you need to do. You need to be relevant in every community that matters to your business. Yeah, and I think at times you can inspire that cultural connection that can happen authentically. And I've seen that happen with Ledger as well. It's funny you just brought up Drake because I think a watershed moment for me with you know a, being a huge supporter of the Ledger brand and everything y'all are building is seeing Drake ice out his Ledger and post it on Instagram because like you can't buy that type of fandom and that type of authentic connection. Can you share a little bit about that story? Yeah, it was completely organic. The true story is, is that I you know, met Drake a couple times working with Jimmy Iovine. I know Drake's manager future pretty well because we worked together on the deal with Drake for Beats Music. He's always nice to me, responds to my texts and my emails if I need something. Talked to him a couple times when I was at LVMH, you know, Hennessy is one of our brands and we talked about that. We never did anything together. And then suddenly one day we see a Nano S. Again, it was an old one. That's how you know it wasn't us. Because like if we were going to ice it out, it would have been an S plus or an X, right? It was a device we don't even sell anymore. And we see it iced out on Drake's Instagram. We're like, what? So I text Future and I'm like, dude, thank you. And he's like, wait, you're at Ledger? I didn't even know. That's how organic it was. So I got to be honest, I don't know the story. I just told you everything I know about the story. That's amazing. You can't buy that. You know, just this past weekend, we had Snoop on WWE wearing a death row ledger around his neck. It looks amazing. If you search Snoop Ledger on Twitter, you'll find lots of images of it. I had, you know, people texting me like, yo, dude, what did that cost? The reality is really not much because I'm telling you, like Snoop buys the mission. 
and not just Snoop, Champ. You know, his son Cordell is a longtime supporter, was at Ledger Open last summer, was at Ledger Open in December, was, you know, he was there with the day we announced the stacks. And the, why was it on WWE? Because I sat with Snoop and Cordell in Snoop's hotel room three weeks ago here in Paris, or two weeks before the WWE. And he was like, what's your mission with Ledger? And I said, my mission is that the ad says, hey, my name's Damien. I'm 21 years old. I live in Baltimore and I don't have a bank. I've never had a bank. And my mom says she had Ledger. She would have never had a bank. You know, my paycheck goes straight to my Ledger. I've got a Ledger credit card. I live in a digital economy. I live in a digital world. And, you know, this is what works for me. And, uh, you know, Snoop gets that mission. He's like, I understand that. Where I come from, that makes sense to me. Right. So, I mean, even when we did Beats Music, I went and spent time with LeBron and his family, you know, talking about music. Like, what do you think of this product? Like, what does it mean to you? What do you want to do with it? What do you listen to? You know? And so I think that, you know, just kind of sponsorship or throwing money out there, it doesn't work. I posted last week because I did a meetup in LA. I bought $300 worth of hamburgers. Everybody had a really good time. When you do cool shit, you don't spend money. You win hearts and minds. I hope that, you know, people feel that way. I hope that if you talk to Bobby from the hundreds or Betty from Deadfellas or whoever, they would say, yeah, I mean, the ledger people are real people. They really give a shit. They're going to be here for the long term and, and we're supporters. And not only that, but also, you know, hopefully artists, whether it's, you know, Justin Abersano or Eric or Tyler or whomever. I hope, you know, like we try to do the same thing we did in music. I learned that from Jimmy too. You do the right thing. You know, there are definitely times I saw Jimmy do the right thing by artists that were maybe not the smartest thing for the company financially, but taking care of the artists was most important to him. Yeah, and I think the community level that you guys play in is frankly very inspiring because I think you've always put that work in. You know, I remember going to, I think it was like the first Bright Moments event in New York and like everyone who they just grabbed off the street and said, let me tell you what an NFT is and given them out, then also got a ledger and got the education side. There's a very hands-on approach, which I think you kind of need on the ledger device, especially if you're not native to crypto. But like you guys are also, I think the only crypto product sold in Best Buy. So that also makes me really wonder about when looking at that, which I think is, again, very impressive because I think it probably opens up people's worlds that we don't often touch even at the Coindesk. We're still like, we're focused on a pretty crypto native audience. Going into retail stores where people are, you know, shopping for last minute HDMI cables and then they see a ledger fixture, you know, is that initiative about connecting people to crypto today or is that about solidifying ledger's place in their minds for when the future of this digital economy comes to realization? That's a great question. I mean, Best Buy wouldn't put us in there if it didn't sell. They got a business to run, and um, so they're not doing advertising for us, right? If it didn't sell. And Best Buy is a super interesting story because I think it happened much earlier than I would have expected. We had exactly the same experience with Boulanger here in France, and that's even more surprising to me. The Best Buy story is incredible. There's a buyer at Best Buy who was familiar with the product. Her and her husband were owners of the product, and she said, this will work at Best Buy. And I was like, are you sure? I'll tell you, when they called, I actually told my team, don't call them back because I want to call Denise Morales from Beats and was like, Denise, you got to help me because I'm afraid I'm going to screw up this Best Buy thing. But you know, the buyer, she knew it. She had the insight. She knew the product and she knew the blue shirts knew the product. I think it really speaks to what crypto actually is. You got to remember that you know, crypto is like a generational phenomenon, right? It's not people my age. It's people that are the age of people that work at Best Buy and they know the product. They like the product. They actually have an affinity for the product and they have an affinity for what the product means. So, you know, we started online with Best Buy, October of 21, it worked. Then the market started to cool off and I'm like, okay, well, this train stops there, right? You know, they said, you know what? We want to test it in some stores. Okay. They did and it worked. And then they put it in all stores. And ultimately we went to all stores with, you know, buy online, pick up in store. And 
You know, what's incredibly interesting is that a huge number of the sales at Best Buy are buy online, pick up in stores. And actually the majority of buy online are picked up in store. So it's actually a use case as well. When uh, Solana got hacked, we sold a lot of uh, ledgers at Best Buy, right? Because I need a ledger and I don't need it next week. I need it right now, right? I need it right this second. And I think the number is like 90% of America lives within 20 minutes of a Best Buy. So I think it's very practical. Look, a lot of what we're doing right now is just preparing for the next bull run. You know, we won't be in a bear market forever. That's a fact. Two things you can count on. There will be more digital assets in the world tomorrow than there are today. Total market cap of digital value will go up. And then and we won't be in a bear market forever. So for me, it's just about getting everything in position so that we're ready for that. And retail, selective retail, you know, like very strategic retail, not being over-distributed, not being on sale, not being counterfeit. That's all important. You touch on something else, though, is that that setup is very difficult. I mean, I'd really like to get to the place where the Geek Squad could help people with the setup. The challenge in all of this is that the stakes are so high with this, right? This is not my MP3 collection, right? Like, this is like maybe my life savings. That just changes it. I think Web2 people have quite a hard time with this. And I think it's why so many people have screwed up over the past couple of years because they're like, well, it needs to be easy to use so we can compromise on this self-custody thing and we can compromise on this security thing because God, the self-custody and security makes it so hard to use, right? But you're talking about like value. And when you're talking about value, you can't compromise on either self-custody or security. It just also means that we're relatively early but, you know, like iTunes, iPod, you know, iOS, you know, that integrated solution, as Clayton Christensen said, when the technology is not yet good enough, the integrated solution always wins. So we aim to be that integrated solution that, you know, helps people onboard and helps people kind of buy their first crypto, buy their first NFT, etc. And I completely agree with you that digital assets are going to be everywhere. Ledger is an important step in protecting them. But you also empathize and understand a lot of people listening to this might be wondering, but when is that bull market coming back? So to help other brands and innovators be as comfortable as possible, any advice for those brand builders to understand how to stay focused in a volatile time period and a volatile industry like crypto? I just always remind people that I built my first streaming music app in 1992 and we launched Apple Music in 2015. So don't underestimate the amount of time it will take to gain traction. And you don't want to build a 2008 company in 1998. Also, the other example that I tell when I'm talking to you know, luxury brands or brands like that is I say, look, in the 90s, you know, we were building movie websites, right? I put the first URL on a movie website, on a movie poster in 1995. I didn't try to get you to watch the movie online. And there were companies that did in the late 90s, and those companies failed. And the one that delivered DVDs actually is the one that pulled all the way through you know, to ultimately become you know, a world-leading streaming service, right? So renting DVDs online or, or subscribing to DVD rental online was actually the right product for the 90s. And it was actually much, much, much later that, you know, delivering video on demand was the killer app. So you want to aim correctly. I think for brands today, what they should be doing is, so I'm still consulting with LVMH. I'm on the board of Dr. Martin's. I just tell this audience the same thing I tell my colleagues there. Stay away from speculation. It's only a bad story, right? If you try to sell something on a speculative basis, you either sell it for too much today and it's worth less tomorrow and that's a bad story for your customers or you sell it for too little today and that's a bad story today. So there's no win in that. If instead, just like we were putting up free movie websites in the 90s, you said, hey, you know, thank you for you know, buying this Dr. Martin's 1490 boot. Would you like your free digital collectible? You know, there's no risk to anyone and you'll learn. 
What's the conversion? How does the conversion differ between men and women, between people of different ages, between people of different geographies? Which ones do they like? Why do people put them in their gallery? Why do some people have 10 of them? Hey, we're doing this collaboration with The Clash. Shouldn't that one be really cool? You know, to me, like then the dominoes start to fall like kind of on their own because, you know, employees start to see the value. Consumers start to see the value. You also see where the value isn't. You know, you try things and you fail, but the risk was low. So who cares? And then you go on that learning path. So I think that 20 years from now, probably a sizable percentage of consumer products will be digital. If you just kind of make that assumption, then you say, oh, well, how do I learn a little bit about that future today? There's very creative ways to do that, especially if you're a business like the ones I mentioned, like LVMH, like Dr. Martin's, where you have a very close relationship with creativity and creative communities. I mean, the fruit is basically like ripe and falling on the ground, right? So I think there's really a lot to do there. Ian, thank you so much for giving us so much time. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. We're super excited. We'll put where people can follow you on Twitter in the show notes. We'll link to Ledger. But just really want to say thank you for being generous with your time and your story. It's super inspiring. And I think folks in our audience, which really is kind of more the brand types trying to come into this, need to understand the kind of dramatic revolution that is digital asset ownership and sort of self-sovereign opportunities to own your identity, your assets, your money. And I think you did a fantastic job of explaining that to people. Cool. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's such a joy to be on a podcast you actually listen to. (laughs) I listen to yours. So really, thank you for having me. Very honored. Thank you so much, Ian, for sharing your insights and wisdom. Just chock full of absolute gems. So catch you on the next one. Cool. See you guys soon. Thanks, you. Take care. Avery, what did you think of that conversation with Ian? One of my favorites, for sure. I feel like our guests just keep getting better and better. Ian is a person who understands sort of both sides of being a brand marketer and being a Web3 purist. So he is incredible and dropped just so many incredible insights and anecdotes and stories and amazing analogies throughout as well. So I think he nailed it. What do you think, Sam? Ian is such a gem, frankly, to have on and a pleasure to hear. And I think the biggest takeaway for me, which I think should be on repeat over and over, is that this stuff takes time. When he talked about the idea that he started his first music streaming or digital music startup opportunity in 1992, and it wasn't until 2015 when they sold Beats to Apple that every phone coming out had you know, MP3-based music system on it. That's 13 years of development. And the fact that he is not worried about bull and bear markets, that he is not worried about this trend or that trend, that he is focused on the long-term change and the arc of blockchain as a game changer in the ownership economy, to me, is the lesson we have to take away from this. And just echoing back to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, Ian is a purist. Ian believes in self-custody. And I think Ledger is probably the purest example of that really Web3 native thinking. And at the same time, they're sold in Best Buys. So back to what we were speaking about at the top of this episode, it doesn't have to be picking one or the other. It can be both. And you know, I saw Ledger was just named to Fortune Crypto's top 40 companies. I think they were one. And I completely agree with that because I think the business that Ledger is building is one that has existed for many years and will exist for many years to come. Absolutely. With that, thank you everyone for listening. Let us know any thoughts, ideas, comments that you have, any guests that you want to have on the pod. And we can't wait to talk to you guys next week. 